You're listening to audio from Citizens Church in Birmingham, Alabama. If you'd like to learn more about Citizens, you can visit our website at citizensbhm.com. Have you ever really been near a fire hydrant when it breaks? In my high school, when it got cold enough, I grew up in Georgia a couple of days, it got cold enough, people would, um, who remain nameless would go and unscrew the fire hydrant by the school and spray it all down the streets so that it would freeze and cancel school. Now, if you happen to be there and tried to drink out of that fire hydrant, that phrase rings true. The water is moving too fast. It pushes your face away. Your lips are pushed away. And the water is full of air. So it's like a Coke shaken up and blown into your face. You can't drink from a fire hydrant. It doesn't work. The water is too fast. And that's what today's passage is like. That even though Paul is dropping like the keys to the Christian faith and laying it all out, it kind of washes over you as too much too fast. Even with the wonderful reading from Joel Park, I peeked back and took a look at y'all. He's reading this wonderful passage and a look of glaze was already fallen over y'all's face. Don't lie. Some of y'all are like, no, you didn't look back. I did look back. I peeked. I saw y'all. And today, it ain't Krispy Kreme. I'm not a donut, so please don't glaze over. We're going to slow this fire hydrant down, and we're going to, yes, if you are new here, we laugh at citizens. We have a good time. We use all God given us to learn and love him. We're going to turn the fire hydrant down a little bit, and we're going to take a deep drink of some of the richest stuff you're going to find anywhere, because I want this gospel fire to burn down in your soul just like it's doing to Paul. Because look what Paul says. He's on fire for the gospel, which is the message and person of Jesus. Look at verse 14. He says, when I think about all this, I fall to my knees and I pray to the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Paul stops kind of mid-letter here and just reflects on everything he's written down. Not because he's a narcissist. He's like, aha, look at this. I wrote some good stuff. He's reflecting on the contents of what he wrote. That it's so mesmerizing, he's dropping to his knees and he has to pray. Because in Ephesians 1, we learn this. That God the Father planned our salvation from beginning to end. That God the Son purchased our salvation by the cross, by his very blood. The plan wasn't going to happen without the blood. If Jesus doesn't die for sins, then we are lost forever. We also learned that the Spirit poured himself into us, applying our salvation and making us new. Why do we need to be made new? Well, Ephesians 2 and 3 tell us this, that we were dead in our sins and following evil. We needed redemption or we would never be alive spiritually both now and forevermore. But God made us alive spiritually by grace through faith in Christ Jesus. That God acted. God's not indifferent to your destiny. God looked in your state and said, I'm gonna make these people alive who were dead. Furthermore, God's building a grand, multi-ethnic, eternal church by bringing everyone together. God first brings us to himself, but then he brings people of different generations, people of different ethnicities, people of different incomes together. 
as one grand multi-ethnic church forevermore. And it gets even better because in Ephesians 3, God's victory parade to say that he won, to say that he beat evil, that he conquered death, that he put the devil in his grave one day is that God is putting on, showing off his multifaceted, multi-ethnic church, that that's how he shows that he won, that he redeems people from every tribe, tongue, and nation throughout history. And that's how God's showing off. We are the spoils of the war he has won. And Paul's thinking about all this, and it blows his mind that he needs to stop and pray to the father who created every family and that cares for every family. And then Paul unleashes the fire hydrant. And with a little grammatical help, I think we can take a deep, long drink of exactly how that gospel works in us. Look with me in verse 16. Break it down, a little grammatical help here. It says, what? What is Paul praying? That we would be strengthened by the power of the Spirit in our inner being. Why is he praying this? so that Christ, by faith, would dwell in our hearts. Well, how's Christ, by faith, dwell in our hearts? The how. Christ is rooting us and grounding us in his love. And all that sounds great, but we're going to break it down a little bit more. You're like, okay, check, I'm in. But what's that really mean? When it says inner being, that can sound a bit mystical because it is a bit mystical. Your inner being is the essential you. It is who you are at a soul, at a heart, at a spirit. It's the center of what makes you, you. And we often call this our heart. That's kind of our lingo. In the next verse, we'll use that very lingo. It will say your heart, the essential you. And the Bible speaks about our heart a lot. In Luke 6, Jesus tells us what we do flows out of our heart. Good things from a good heart, bad things from a bad heart. And when Christians, when we become Christians, God gives us a new heart. And we talk about hearts here at Citizens a lot like a garden. I use this metaphor a lot because it fits with scripture really well. But if you think about your heart as a garden, when you come to Christ, it's like God has come and put new soil in the garden so something can actually grow. And then he plants the seed of his son, Christ, pushes it down into the soil. And the rest of your Christian life is God nurturing your heart, helping the seed grow up and bear fruit, pulling the weeds out of the garden that kind of stubbornly remain, having you have new experiences to put more good soil in, speaking to you through the word, speaking to you in his spirit speaking to you through his church, through your friends, through community, and helping shape you into this bursting garden full of fruit of the goodness goodness of God in your life. See, when you receive Christ, you're saved. Past, present, and future are all forgiven. However, the Bible speaks of Christ saved you, is saving you, and will save you. And we don't often talk about all three phases, but the Bible does all the time. See, salvation happens in a moment, but sanctification is a lifetime. And sanctification is a fancy word for becoming holy like Jesus. 
And this process of the garden growing is a good metaphor to think about how sanctification's going. The will of God for your life is for you to believe in Christ and in following him, grow sanctified or more like Jesus over time. And this passage is essentially describing the growth in Christ, growth in understanding, growth in enjoying Jesus, and growth in obeying God. That God would strengthen us by the power of his spirit for Christ to dwell richly in our heart by faith to a greater and greater and greater degree. And as Christ grows in our heart, he grounds our heart in love. And to be grounded in love means you belong to Jesus. That God has made room for you, plenty of room for you to be near to Christ. He's grounding you somewhere. You're not tossed back and forth by the wind and waves anymore. But you know you have a home in God, or rather, Christ has made a home in your heart. To be rooted in love means something has begun to grow. That that garden is taking off. That something different is happening to you. That Christ truly lives in you. And as it grows, look at verse 18, we continue. So that, why is all this growth? Why is all this grounding and rooting? That we may have strength to comprehend, strength to know, strength to think about, thanks to grasp with all the saints of all time, thousands of years of Christians across every continent. What is the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth of God's love? He wants to strengthen us, ground us, root us, grow us to what end? To marvel at his love, to get obsessed with who God is in order to, to know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge. It's the journey that never ends. You're never gonna get to the bottom and go, oh, found it all. No, the further you go, the further you learn that you have to go. And it's not an exhausting journey, but one of excitement, one of deep discovery and adventure to dive into God's love. And why are we doing all this? That you may be filled with the fullness of God. And that phrase that God would be full in you, that you'd be filled with this fullness is saying that God would mature you, that you would become like Christ. That the more you gaze upon the love of God, the more you try to comprehend by his power, you actually start to change. You start to mature because we're meant, like Paul, to be mesmerized by the love of God. Have you ever sat and just meditated on his love? Follow along with Paul here. Have you thought about the wideness of God's love? How welcoming God is? that there's never been a single person in the history of the world too lost to come home. There's never been a single person in the history of the world too evil to be forgiven, too wrong to be saved and changed by God. If you give up hope of God saving someone, you are siding with the devil, not God. Think about the length of God's love. Have you wondered that God's love is never running short? It's never running out. It's never given up. His love is longer than eternity. And 
guess what? You can't out his love. He's just bigger than you and better than you. And that's a good thing. Think about the height of God's love. God's love is enormous. It's like a redwood and we're like an ant and that doesn't even capture it. If you've ever stood before a truly great skyscraper, a truly vast ocean, a truly great mountain, you suddenly have this weird sense of like, I'm in perspective here. Even getting around like an elephant at the zoo, you're like, I'm not as big as I previously thought 10 seconds ago. God's love should make us feel in one way so insignificant. Like, why would he love me? Look at how big and wild this God, this creator of worlds is. But in the same magic of God's love, in that very moment you feel insignificant, he actually fills you with significance that he loves you. That's what the height of God's love feels like. What would it be like to end your search for significance in this life? What would it feel like to not be grasping at all the things, my relationships or friendships or money or how my kids turn out or what my mom thinks about me or whatever it is? What if you put down this endless search of achievement and significance and said, I've actually found my significance and it's actually in this other guy's life, Christ, and that he loves me. That's a whole sermon right there, friends. To let go of the chase and to say, I could do significant things following Jesus for sure. Worthwhile things. But my ultimate significance to be found in the height, the width, the length of God's love as my defining, motivating, signature part of my life. Imagine the freedom to go do significant things if you've already found your significance in Christ. The depth of God's love is as thorough as the nails that broke through our Savior's hands and feet. His love is as deep and as strong as the blood that he spilt for you. God paid in blood to make you his own. There is no money. There are no riches that are as precious and rich and beautiful as God's blood for you. That's a depth and complexity and richness that no one has ever touched that the richest person on earth knows nothing about the worth of a single drop of our Savior. In Christ, God paid your sin debt so that you're free, not free to do whatever you want, but free to actually be his child, to actually belong to Jesus. When we say belong to Jesus in the mission statement, we mean it. That Jesus would belong to us and I to him that we'd be like a little child who's crawled up into the arms of a parent and the parent's never letting go, no matter how bad the storm is, no matter what they're fleeing, no matter what happened, that our role is to snuggle up to our parent, that you actually belong and have space in his arms. We try to comprehend this love. We try to. And when we try to comprehend, the fullness of God starts to build and fill us up. And we start to mature as we grow in the security of the width, the length, the height, the depth of God's love. We change 
But many of us struggle right here with this. That all that sounds good, but might not feel like much of your reality. And I think nothing illustrates this like day-to-day life. So I want to invite you. Yes, Siri. (laughs) Me too, girlfriend. So I want to give you two days. Two days in the life of Justin Carl. Day one, I wake up. Before the alarm, before my kids, I saunter down the stairs, knowing I'm already winning. Crack the Bible, the coffee is hot. The word of the Lord has inflamed my heart. I got tears in my eyes, feeling so loved. Prayers, oh, I can see them being answered right here, right on the couch as I look out the window and listen to the birds. The kids kind of barrel down the stairs and they jump on pop. Dad, I love you. I love you too. I had dreams about us hanging out. Tell me everything. And as we're hugging, they say, hey, dad, I love you, but I really want pancakes. And you know what I say? It's a school day, but what the heck? (laughs) Grab a couple chairs, kids. And hey, grab the sprinkles and the chocolate chips and the blueberries. We're getting wild in these pancakes today. And as we're making the pancakes, flipping, having fun, Elena comes down the stairs and goes, wow. Hey, Justin, you're so handsome. It hits me every day. And two, you really are super dad. And with a hug and a kiss on the cheek, I say, hey, babe, this is just Tuesday. Just Tuesday, girl. I get all the kids in the car. They get dressed themselves. Their shoes are on. We're in the car. They're singing my favorite band. They're singing Arcade Fire on the top of their lungs, just loving it, singing, put your money on me. They get out of school, but Ellie turns back at the car and says, dad, will you pray extra for me today? I've been learning in City Kids about trusting God, and I really want to trust him with my school day. I say, sure, babe. Put arm around her and pray. Then I'm off. I hit a workout. Of course I PR. Of course. (laughs) Then I hit study time, and hours just kind of breeze by, doing what I love. I'm in the zone. I'm in the flow. I go to lunch with a new member at Citizens. And it blows my mind, telling me about how he's experiencing the gospel, applying it to his work and his home and his family starting to flourish. And he's so encouraged by everything that's going on. Then I grab coffee with one of our elders. A problem that stumped us for a couple weeks, we solve it in like 10 minutes. Just bang, right there. And then the elder says, hey, I actually prepared something. I got 10 ways I'm so encouraged by God's work at Citizens. Let's just go over them and glory in God together. I go, that sounds great. I leave that meeting so encouraged. We hit home that night. We make dinner together. We share about our days. My kids actually eat their food and actually tell me what happened at school. We all dance to a little Taylor Swift. And then, hey, let's all get ice cream. And we'll invite our unbelieving neighbor and their kids. And he says, yeah, I can't wait. So we go out to ice cream. We hit an IG pick. And he looks at me and goes, man, You guys seem to have a hope of the gospel. Man, I'll be at Citizens on Sunday. I'll see you there, bro. I say, awesome. We get home. I clean up the kids. I read them Harry Potter. They fall asleep whispering, today was the best day, dad. I say, good. We'll do it again tomorrow. 
Elaine and I stay up to share our days and enjoy each other. And I just go to bed with a big smile on my face that God loves me. But then there's day two. I missed the alarm. Elena has to wake me up. I've already dropped the ball on helping the kids get ready. My back hurts going down the stairs because I'm 35, not 20. My kids barely listen and squabble at the table, and I grow irritable. I also forgot to set the coffee the night before. We rush into the car, and I frankly eat a disgusting Nutri-Grain bar. The kids complain the whole way. I snap at them. I end up in a traffic jam. I stew. I'm impatient. The kids are late. And Eloise turns back and says, Dad, why are you so grumpy in the morning? I drive alone in silence and shame as my kids see the obvious. I'm just a big old fraud who's barely hanging on day to day. I don't have a quiet time at all. Instead, I realize I have an overpacked day ahead of me that I feel underprepared for. As I run around Birmingham in meetings, I often leave them feeling defeated, worthless. I couldn't remember what I wanted to say till after the meeting. People's pain feels too large to even help them with. I get two emails about opportunities for citizens who have fallen through. I get another odd message about the end times from a neighbor who's apparently growing impatiently, haven't taken a lot of time to respond. I only get an hour of study, and I leave more confused than usual. Elena's had a tough day, and instead of sympathy and empathy and understanding and listening, I'm too wrapped up in my own day, wallowing in the melodrama of my life, and I hurt her in the process. Dinner is more labor than love. The kids don't eat. The house is a mess. I realize I forgot an appointment from earlier that day, and I kind of text to apologize and realize I'm... I'm overwhelmed. I go to bed angry, short with Elena, stressed about Sunday, and mostly in a pity party about myself. So which day does God love Justin more? Day one or day two? For you, does God love you more on your best day or your worst day. And it's a trick question that God's love doesn't change. And when we start to understand that, that means we are actually being rooted and grounded in the love of God. Because God's love isn't about our behavior. We have been adopted into a now and forever family of God. It's about Jesus's behavior and his sacrificial death for people like me who can't ever seem to get it right. To be rooted and grounded in the actual gospel means that our faith, is in what Christ has done, not what we do. Your salvation and God's love simply is not what you do or don't do or fail to do. 
Christ dwelling in your heart means to believe in his never changing, never failing love. It doesn't go up and down. We do, but God doesn't. That word dwell means he's come to stay in our heart. And he has work to do to root us and ground us, to get us to marvel at his love for the rest of eternity, not just now. When Christ's doneness, what he's done on the cross becomes your story, that's when you become a Christian. And for some of you, I know this might be revelatory stuff. Maybe you even grew up in church, maybe you've heard about Jesus, but if it was some message other than this, that wasn't Christianity. That was just religion where you work your way to God. But we have a God who's given us a gospel of grace that Christ has actually done the work to come to us, to put us on his back and carry us up the mountain. It is God who's drawn near to us. Remember what Ephesians 2 says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It's not from getting it all right. It's not like getting a prize. It's like getting a gift. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. We truly become like Christ by gazing at Christ and dwelling in his love. We accept the gift from God by enjoying Jesus. He's the gift. If you want to know if you're in the faith, do you love and enjoy Jesus? If you do, then you know him. If you do not, then you don't. We don't obey to get love. We obey because we're loved. Jesus forgives us when we fail. He offers peace to pathetic people like me. He offers salvation to sinners. He offers a new life to the overwhelmed and the underwhelming. God strengthens us by his power to have faith in Christ dwelling in our heart, to root us and ground us in love so that we become obsessed with how wide and how long and how deep and how high the love of God is that we'll never ever get to the end of. And it's from that place of overwhelmed and mesmerized and marveling at God's love that God will produce a good fruit in our heart. The garden of our heart will take off the day that we say that this soil is God's love period. And God's going to bring a great harvest because he's that kind of guy. Jesus says this in Luke 6, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. The evil person out of evil treasure produces evil. For out of abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Follow Jesus and he will start building a heart full of good treasure full of him strengthening you to believe in his love. Just like the man said, help me in my unbelief to Jesus, and Jesus helped, you can cry out and say, Lord, help me believe. Help build good treasure in my heart. Not in the sense that I've just been forgiven way back then. God is saving you now. God is active in your life now. When we sing praises, we're singing in the right now that he is the God who has a love that I can barely understand, but the longer I gaze, the more I grow. You will have a life of good treasure. Watch how your life changes as you follow him. And if you don't believe God can do it, I just say you're wrong, friend. Look what God says. Look what Paul says in verse 20. Now to him, that's God, who is able to do far more abundantly than we ask or think. 
He can do more than we ask or think. He's not a genie. He's actually your God. He can do more than you ask or think. According to what? According to the power at work within us. The proof that God can do what he said is your life. If he can save a sinner like you and a sinner like me, then what can't he do? Will you trust him for more than just fire insurance from hell, but to say, I want to live a new life today? Will we put our faith to say, root me and ground me, God? Why? Look what it says in the scripture. To God be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Church, pray for Jesus to get glory through your life and glory through his church. If you want to know if my prayer's in the zone, is it bringing glory to God and glory to his church, as it says? Because God's able. Don't give up on God. Don't give up that you can be different. The most toxic thing you can believe about yourself is that you'll never change. A marriage ends when you believe your spouse will never change. Your parenting is a car wreck as soon as you believe your kids will never change. Because we have a God who's able, who does new things all the time, that starts new gardens, pulls weeds, and plants new things. Christians are a loved people rooted and grounded in love on their best and their worst day and can pray prayers full of hope because God is able. To be grounded in love means you belong to Jesus. You found a home in Jesus because Jesus lives in your heart. Remember, church, it's not about what you do, but about what Christ has done. That is the sharp tip of the gospel, to believe in what Christ has done, not what you've done. To be rooted in love means something has begun to grow in you. Let's trust Christ for this. Let's pray big prayers to a God who's able.